And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, February 26th. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris here with you. On this episode, we dig into some first weekend news and notes. We've got a big signing. Cody Bellinger goes back to a familiar place, so we'll dig into the implications of that. Uh, a lot of pitchers making their first appearance of the spring, so we're seeing velo readings, we're seeing some new pitches, we're seeing IVB numbers, so we're going to dig into some of that. And for the later part of the episode, we're going to talk about some draft strategy, thinking about what you're going to have available in the middle and later rounds of your draft and how that informs the decisions you're going to make in the foundation, right? You got to think about what's going to be there later as you build your teams. Eno, how was your weekend? It was good. Uh, Little League season started. Shout out to Felix who uh, got a scene tattoo this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) He got hit hard in the, the flesh of his left forearm and uh, very clearly can see the seam of the baseball. So he, uh, it took him a second. He had to walk off to the side for a second, but then I uh, shook it off and got back in the game. They did not uh, fare so well, but uh, it was just a scrimmage and uh, just getting the rust out. So I, I think it'll be a good season. I'm back to being jealous that Little League season begins in late February where you live because uh, <laughs> it doesn't begin quite that early <laughs> where I am. <laughs> Good weekend with Potapalooza that Justin Mason put together. I know a lot of money was raised for charity. Great job by Justin doing that again. I saw the the panel that you were doing uh, with Paul, uh, Carlos Mercano, and, and James. I thought that was a really, yeah, James Chiano. I thought that was a really good panel. I was kind of glued to the living room this weekend, so Potapalooza came at the exact right time for me. So between that, uh, tweets coming by for starts that I couldn't watch, like the Cole Reagan start, uh, it, did, it did feel like baseball was really just around the corner this weekend. A little frustrated by, uh, like, not, not being on TV. Maybe it's just early, but I have seen some schedules where I'm like, you know, forget what team it was. It's like on TV 10 times this spring. It's a money thing. I also saw, I was watching the Orioles-Red Sox game on Saturday. I think it was the day that Corbin Burns pitched. That was so bad. The center field camera. Oh, I was like getting nauseous. On the Masson feed, it was like it was in the wind or something or in the yeah. breeze. It wasn't mounted properly. Fortunately, the Nesson feed was better. Uh, they had a different so camera. I, I was worried it was going to be the same camera on both feeds. I switched to the other feed and it was totally fine. But yeah, you could barely watch it. It, it, it felt like someone was just hand-holding a camera and just yeah. couldn't keep it still <laughs> out in center field. I think a lot of the spring training stuff comes down to money. I think it's the teams don't want to spend on broadcasters to be out there and camera yeah. crews to work those games. And it's too bad because I I think it helps get people excited for the season at a time when nothing else is firing quite right. Right, the NBA is not to the playoffs yet. The NHL is not to the playoffs yet. There's kind of like a lull in the winter sports, and you could have this post Super Bowl excitement about baseball that builds up. 
especially since it's like a it's a day sport game you know like nba is like almost always nighttime you know and hockey's more nighttime so like like on a saturday in march you should just be able to turn on your spring training game for your for your team you know I guess you get the stretch run for uh, men's and women's college basketball, and I was watching, actually, Wisconsin women's hockey on Saturday night because they're pretty much the best program in the country. They had a great uh, great game against Ohio State. I should check out the Stanford schedules and see if I can get the boys to see uh, one more Stanford women's basketball game. Sorry <laughs> like if it's all, all over and I missed that, but uh, <laughs> I have been taking them to some Stanford baseball games, and uh, we were excited that uh, Rintaro Sasaki, the, the big... Mm. Japanese high schooler signed with Stanford. Uh, we thought uh, he might be here this year, but apparently that he signed for next year. <laughs> oh, bummer! Yeah, yeah they and made maybe, the announcement a couple weeks ago, so it, it seemed like it was maybe right. going to happen yeah. right away. And, and maybe, uh, maybe it'll be. Well, it'll be an interesting year. I saw that Stanford was top five in some of these stuff plus they had for college baseball. Um, maybe that was. I guess that was Mason McRae, but. Um, Anyway, uh, the results have not been stellar. They are like one and five or something, and it seems like a bit of a lack of pitching is, is the problem. So I'm interested to see where this stuff plus but bad results thing goes for Stanford this year. All right. Well, that's what we're watching. That's what we did this weekend. Hope everybody was excited to hear about that for a few minutes. But hey, we're, we're real people. We, we do other things once in a while outside of baseball as well. Uh, be sure to hit the like button on this video. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. We've got our Friday live stream with Trevor May at 1 o'clock Eastern again this week. And if you haven't joined the Discord yet, that is open. Be sure to click the link in the show description to jump in there and connect with a lot of other listeners and viewers of the show. Let's start with Cody Bellinger. He goes back to the Cubs. The final number, three years, $80 million, but it's a complicated deal, which makes sense because Cody Bellinger has had something of a complicated career. It's three for 80 with two opt-outs. He can opt out after this season. He can opt out after 2025. Uh, it's not the mega deal that Scott Boris and Cody Bellinger were hoping for when the offseason began, but when you consider just how, how bad the final two seasons for Bellinger were with the Dodgers compared to the incredible bounce back year he just had with the Cubs. You can begin to understand why teams were hesitant to think about a, a seven or an eight year deal, not knowing how his profile was going to age. We've talked about him several times as someone that kind of put the best parts of his profile together in his first season with the Cubs by getting his K rate back down to those 2019 and 2020 levels. He got back to the, a 20 home run power level with 26 homers. He was still stealing bases. And that was without a full season last year, too. I mean, this is only 556 plate appearances, 130 games for Bellinger from a year ago. The complicating factor was that even though the season was good, very good by most offensive measures, the underlying numbers are a little bit misaligned with the performance, right? We're talking about a guy that was basically a top 10 hitter by the auction calculator for roto purposes. But the more you look at StatCast, the hard hit rates, the barrel rates, you have these questions about how sustainable the approach was for Bellinger a year ago. Yeah, I've seen some pushback. Uh, Travis Sawchick was talking about how Cody Bellinger uh, is good at uh, pulled line drives and, and fly balls. Um, and so I wanted to look at that in the context of uh, of other players and, you know, one thing that I see is that like it 
he doesn't do a lot of it. So I don't know if he's just good at it when he does it, but like uh, in terms of how many of his fly balls are, are pulled, he's not like Isak Paredes. Like if you want to say, oh, he's got the Isak Paredes gene, Isak Paredes is up there with Joey Gallo and Adam Duvall at like 45%. Now that's, that's someone I think that can sometimes outdo their, we've talked about this a lot, but outdo their, their expected power numbers, right? Um, that, that is, you're pulling 40% of your fly balls. That means anytime you put it in the air, like it's almost 50, 50 that it's to the pull side, right? Like that's really good and really big. Well, uh, Cody Bellinger is at 33, uh, 33%. He's 36th in the big leagues at this, uh, by Anthony Santander and, I guess Marcus Simeon. So like Simeon kind of does this approach too, to some extent. Um, but it doesn't seem to me like he's in that group that needs to, um, needs to be seen as like over, he's going to do better than his barrel rate or whatever. I want to do this again really quickly. So that was how many of your fly balls are pulled. So now I want to do how many of your pulls are fly balls. <laughs> Do you think there's like one is better than the other? Like, how many of your pulls? Okay, so Joey Gallo and Adam Duvall are at the top of this anyway. Of their pulled uh, balls, fifty percent are fly balls. So we and Paredes is is fifth. So it's it's very similar. It's forty percent. Um, and Bellinger, not on the first page again. Not on the second page. Not on the third page. So it's a ghost man. Like uh, he doesn't of his pulled balls, not that many are fly balls, and of his uh, fly balls, like an okay amount of pulled. Oh, there he is. He's on the first page. He's twenty second. Do you think that like somebody who's twenty second in a skill, like twentieth to thirtieth in a skill, is an outlier? very barely an outlier is 50% not like in the yeah. scrum with 30% you know yeah yeah an outlier is extreme right I yeah. think it, it made sense to kind of start it with Isak as a good extreme example we've talked a lot about and I, is it is it having a good plan is it taking the pitches you should pull and doing damage on those and taking pitches that you shouldn't try to pull and hitting those in a way that's more effective because the other thing about Cody Bellinger's offensive profile last year is that he hit 319 on balls in play. That was his highest BABIP ever. He had a couple of low 300 BABIPs back in 18 and 19. 19 was his 47 home run season where everything was working for him. I just wonder if he had a better all-around approach and plan with the Cubs than he had during his previous two seasons with the Dodgers and how much it was just being completely healthy again too I mean, that's that's always been part of the story with Bellinger he hurt his shoulder a few years ago and didn't seem like he was really the same guy for a couple of years so that's also the the kind of unknown as far as how you project him going forward but as far as where he ranks in that in that pull trait that seems pretty normal to me it doesn't seem like an outlier yeah um yeah i mean he's like slightly towards the top i also want to see like with two strikes i think very obviously um we've got a player here that has changed um his two something about his approach and i think to, to me like something about it is his uh, two strike approach so i want to look at 
his two strike production by year. And what you see is that 2023 was his second best of his career. Um, and he hit 279 with a 313 OBP and 411 slugging with two strikes. Um, I don't know. It doesn't seem sustainable given his career. Like, if you look at his two strike production, the last time it was as good was 2019. And then it went in the tank right and it wasn't that good even in 27 2018 when he was good it was it, his wobo was below 300 like his slugging was 330 those years so that seems to me like that's gonna regress right like you wouldn't expect him to hit 280 with a 411 slugging against two strike counts going forward when the league uh you know hits what did the league i got the league average last year was with two strikes. I mean, it's going to be super low. Two strikes last year, the league hit 172 with a 249 OBP and 273 slugging. That just seems to me like it's screaming regression, no matter what your approach is, you know? Yeah. And the other weird characteristic here is that Cody Bellinger improved against lefties to ridiculous levels. We have said time and time again, you can't trust any one year split in a handedness sense, especially a left-handed split. It's even smaller. Yeah. But 183 this last year. A 164 WRC plus. Cody Bellinger hit 337 with a 388 OBP and a 596 slug. He popped 10 homers against lefties and only struck out 15.8% of the time against lefties. So, yes, that could be small sample noise. And, yeah, you're probably expecting too much if you think he can repeat what he did last year. But it seemed like there were so many things changing. It would be foolish to assume he can't do 75 or 80% of what he just did from a power perspective. Projections spit out a decent range on him. Zips is optimistic at 267, 327, 441. The Bat X is down at 254, 321, 449. Okay, like those are, those are fine projections, especially when you're talking about someone who should go 2020 around them. And still plays pretty good defense, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it, it made sense uh, for the team, and it made sense for the team on this kind of a contract. I think one of the things you look at, the way we're talking about him, is there's just so much you know, risk around what type of player he will be going forward. It, it, is he becoming the sort of slappy McSlapperson that you know can put the ball in play? And, and, you know, hold his water against lefties and hold his water in two strike counts, but not, you know, be the power threat. You know, which, which way is he going from here? What, which one of these approaches is going to stick? And if you do a three and 80, um, you're just not going to get locked into something where you're like, oh man, we have like Jake Cronenworth at first base now for like another hundred million dollars. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's instead like, well, if he turns into Jake Cronenworth at first base, you know, we're cool with that for like a year, you know, and then we'll be and then we'll be clear. You know? uh, but if he turns into the old MVP form, you know, we'll be happy to pay $30 million a year for him. So I think that's why you saw the years come down, the dollars go up. Um, there's a question about whether or not this is a good strategy by Boris. You're kind of seeing a little bit more of this sort of result from some of the guys he's holding out the longest but i think he held out carlos Rodon pretty long and got like 170 million for him and like 
I can't say that like holding out long has been really bad for him or his clients. So yeah, think about it this way. It's 30 million for this year for Bellinger. If he opts out because he has a good year, he has to beat two for 50 on the open market next winter. I would say there's a very good chance. If he's going to opt out, he can beat most what he did. He's going to beat that. So it's sort of like kicking the can down the road to see if you really get that long-term value betting on yourself to some extent, which again, probably is the function of every team having a model that spit out some question marks or numbers much lower than what Bellinger and Boris were hoping for when they were trying to model what a longer-term deal would look like for him. One more really good year would change those outputs quite a bit. He'll be 29 next winter, so it's not absurd to go back and try and get the bigger deal a year from now. Um, Looking at the projection compared to other players in the pool, again, using the Bat-X, the 22 homers, the 18 steals, the 254 average. I just filtered for that. There's just those three categories. There's only one player projected for those numbers or better going after Cody Bellinger in drafts. It's Matt McClain. He's the only one who has the each of those three boxes ticked. So I think there's a general air of skepticism around Bellinger in fantasy circles as well. He goes right around pick 60 or so. Maybe going back to a familiar place, he'll creep up a little bit or at least he'll stabilize in the sense that there won't be rooms where he falls as much as he yeah, has. Yeah, he won't sign with the it. Giants. <laughs> right, the fear of, he, of him ending up in a really pitcher-friendly environment or just going to a new place, not really knowing how that would work out for him, that's all gone. I got him in the sixth round, late sixth round of the mixed labor draft last week, and my thinking was the projection's good. He was almost a top 10 hitter by Roto value last year. He doesn't have to be a top 10 hitter for me to be a good value late in round six. Well, so I'm in when he falls, especially, but I'm not opposed to drafting him even at market value, potentially, if it makes sense for my build. Speaking of drafts, mm. uh, I'm on the clock. Yeah, we're always on the clock now. Why don't we make my first selection in TGFBI on air? We need a sound for that. You're on the clock. The in front of me, I'm surprised by what is allowed uh, for me to choose from. Uh, I am the seventh pick, and I have the choice of Kyle Tucker, Corbin Carroll, or Fernando Tatis. Uh, it is a smorgasbord of opportunity here. Uh, that was allowed because Spencer Strider went ahead of me, and Freddie Freeman went ahead of me, which uh, were both uh, players that usually go behind my spot. Now, I just wanted to run through this real quick because you can see a little bit of my process. I have some um, uh, some some custom-made values uh, from Ariel Cohen uh, by uh, using ATC. And um, his, in his custom-made values, I should be taking Aaron Judge, none of these three. But I don't, I don't know. There's a little bit of risk there. He's talking about how his toe uh, is uh, something he's going to have to manage his whole career. And so I, I kind of treat that ranking with a little bit of a side eye. Um, and so when I look at who I could really take, it's Kyle Tucker uh, at, uh, at $33 and uh, Corbin Carroll at 32 and Fernando Tachis at 31.8. So basically it's saying, hey, good luck. <laughs> um, you know, uh, make your choice the way you want to. Um, if I use the bat X, uh, I think things are a little bit different here. Um, I have to get the settings right, but if I remember correctly, the bat X is going to spit out 
Uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. So let's see here. Yes, the Bat X says Fernando Tatis Jr. forty-five dollars, uh, and Corbin Carroll thirty-four, and Kyle Tucker thirty-five. So this is a pretty easy win for the Bat X, saying you know like take Tatis. Um, I think Corbin Carroll's shoulder is a little bit scary. Uh, Tatis, of course, has his own injury history. And Kyle Tucker is just so boring and great. <laughs> uh, but Tucker, yeah, Tucker is second in the bad X. I uh, am going to go with Tatis. Um, I just love the balance in the uh, production. Um, and I think the second year off of his shoulder, uh, it's uh, he's going to have a good year. And uh, I'm a little bit scared about Carol subluxing that shoulder. So I am drafting Fernando Tatis live on on the pod. Just happened. I think I would have taken Kyle Tucker. I don't think there's a bad choice in the bunch. I mean, I think the fact that the projections, depending on which set you run, are all going to kind of steer you a different way. It gives you an idea that you probably can't make a bad choice with the information we have right now. I think for me, the difference is I look at Tucker and I see a little more stability in the batting average category. And I think I like having that cushion. I've started to think that maybe I need to calculate batting average as a counting stat just to quantify it better in my head and understand the value of it as I'm going along. Like how many hits you're buying? Like how many hits am I really buying? Yes. Like, or, or just like, I don't know. Just it's, it's so easy to look at a 30-30 player and know how valuable that player is in Roto. But a 300 hitter that hits 20 homers with 12 steals... You're kind of like, oh, that's a good player. It's like, no, that's a really good player. But your brain, your brain loves 30-30. Your brain, for some reason, doesn't seem to love 30-20-12 the same way, or 300-20-12. Yeah, um, and I mean, I Tucker was probably my second. Carol went right after me, so um, it's it is uh, why I like picking earlier in the first round. I do not like picking after this because. I think now your choices are Judge, Soto, Cole. Those are exciting players, uh, but there's injury. Soto doesn't run the same. His batting average is a bit of a question mark. Uh, Garrett Cole's strikeouts were down. So you start, I mean, the whole draft is, you know, more and more question marks as you go along. So probably I should have taken Kyle Tucker because that's the fewest question marks, right? With Tatis, there are still a couple question marks. Well, you're playing to win the overall. You do that with any one of those guys, but uh, the Tatis feels more like the give me the highest possible ceiling of the trio. Some might argue Carroll has that ceiling yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. That's why these decisions are fun. It's good to have two or three guys you really like instead of just saying, well, I got the one that I knew I was going to get. <laughs> Freeman going a little earlier is interesting. I think we are going to see a few more people push batting average into their foundation more aggressively uh, this draft season. So. That'd be one way to do it, given what Freeman has done in that category. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk about some stuff that was going down this weekend. Hunter Green showed a new splitter and a curveball in his debut. Two new pitches. Gotta like that. It sounds like he's got a little more confidence in the splitter so far. He's going to keep working on the curveball this spring. We'll see if, if both of these pitches, or at least one of them, make it into his arsenal when the games begin to count. But what are you doing with all the information that seemingly it's grown? Like the, the amount of working on a new pitch, has a new pitch, uh, velo is up, velo is down, uh, induced vertical break has increased. Like There is a flood of information. I think it was Torres takes on Twitter this weekend that said, I remember when people thought spring training was meaningless and no one did anything at all based on spring training. And now people dig into every possible morsel of information trying to improve their process, trying to improve their valuations of players. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong to care about a lot of these things, but I'm curious to know, like with Hunter Green and some of these other guys we'll get to in a minute, how are you adjusting based on these new pitches in particular? It comes just in time because I was doubting my ranking. I have Hunter Green uh, 33rd right now um, in with some of the really high uh, upside uh, but risky uh, vets like Carlos Rodon, Justin Verlander, Michael King. And so it, that, that 30s is where... Um, you buy upside and, you know, I was a little bit worried that Hunter Green's, uh, ERA is, you know, projected to be higher than someone like Carlos Rodon's, you know, and like, do I have him in the right place? And, um, you know, I've been trying to means test my, my rankings and sometimes I've passed on green, but I've also, uh, been picking green, uh, as like one of the last, you know, players that I think has, you know, Cy Young type upside, you know? Um, and so with this news, I'm, I feel a little bit better about my ranking, you know, so I'm not going to move him much. Um, and you know, I think the, the big mover for me is injury. So Cal Bradish dropped, you know, 70 spots with his, with his news, even though there's some okay news that he's playing catch and responding well. And, you know, but he's opening the season on the IL. That's not ideal. That's going to tank you a lot. So I, I move a lot for, for that. In terms of movement, um, I'm, I'm excited to hear about it. I, you know, Stuff Plus is built on the idea that these things are important in small samples, and they can be the the, the difference for a season. If you look at Chris Paddock as an example, you know, he came up with a fastball with great ride and a straight change, and was looking for a breaking ball. He started throwing in the cutter, and it cut the vertical movement on his fastball. And so everything sort of fell apart a little bit. And you can see this in the story of his stats and like what he's what he did with those movements. So to hear that he's got more ride than he had last year on the fastball this spring, uh, which you can see if you look in the uh, in the Statcast, uh, you compare you have to compare the Statcast player page to the Statcast uh, box score because the stuff that's happening in the box score where it's comparing it to before is not always right. So you have mm. to like look at Chris Paddock's average, 
And, you know, in the box score, it said that Chris Paddock uh, had 13 inches of vertical break. Uh, and if you look on his player page, he had 14 last year. So he's got an extra inch of vertical break. That's just, you know, again, I don't think it's going to make me move him a lot, but he had been dropping my rankings mostly because of you. And, uh, and so I may cease to drop him, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to put a little bit of a floor on there because this is good news that he's throwing a cutter, but also has the best, you know, some, some vertical movement on his fastball that he's had in the last couple of years. So if he can somehow find a way to throw the cutter, get right on his fastball and his changeup has an extra four inches of, of movement on it this spring, um, horizontally, maybe there's still like the best Chris Paddock that can emerge out of this. Uh, but like, you know, jumping him 20 points in the rankings or something based on, on some IVB, I think is problematic because, um, you know, I, I think that spring training, probably the sites are calibrated. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to like speak ill on anybody that does this job, but I think that it wouldn't be surprising to me if they weren't calibrated as well as major league parks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a um, there's a collection problem potentially with the data and yeah. the inconsistency from park to park. Even having it available is still frustrating. I can't believe in, in 2024 we don't have a, a little more of a standard for all the spring parks to at least have that as an offering. Now, uh, Lance Brozdowski got everybody excited with a tweet about Cole Reagans. Reagans was doing it himself. He was being gift like crazy, uh, blowing 101 past Anthony Rendon, who really didn't want to be there yesterday <laughs> by most accounts <laughs> wasn't even supposed to be here today yeah. and uh so what we're seeing is velo with more induced vertical break from reagan's lance pointed this out in the tweet last season the closest shape and velo combo he had reagan's had was uh, 98.9 miles per hour on the fastball with 20 inches of ivb he got up to 101 last season with velo but it's only with 15 inches of IVB. The strikeout he had on Sunday, one was against Zach Neto, was 101 with 20 inches of induced vertical break. And these are just eye-popping numbers. I know for a lot of people listening, this is still a relatively new concept. We dug into it in detail with Trevor May on our first Friday live stream. Go back and listen to that if you haven't had a chance to because it'll start to make a lot more sense. But how sticky is induced vertical break? When you see a jump like this and you see that on top of the velo, is this something that we assume is now like a skill Cole Reagans has? Like how how do you how do you account for that? When we did the validation for Stuff Plus, and we we even redid it this off season because we were working with Jordan Rosenblum on the projections, the sort of sticky amount, the the the, the number of fastballs you need to sort of believe the Stuff Plus is, I think twenty twenty five. So. You know, and then last year, there's an instructive example here. Lance Brzezowski is saying that he threw one with 20 last year. His average was 16 IBB on the season. So even in a season where your average is 16, you're going to hit 20 sometimes, right? So he could have just hit his 20 for us and still be around 16, right? So there's still, it's inconvenient information. We're running to these, like, it is information designed to be more important in smaller samples, but we're, we're pushing it on the, on the ones, <laughs> like to come running with one pitch, be like, woo. I mean, like 
even within stuff plus even saying that movement and velo and stuff like that is sticky people have ranges within that so um you know he hit he threw 120 last year and he had a 16 if he gets it up to 17 or 18 this year on average that would be good we would want to see these two starts of that and we'd want to have the data in hand one of the things i saw people talking about was well people seem to be making all these uh gains in the off season um when they're throwing you know at their at their facilities and they have you know oh this much ivb and then you know is it doesn't seem like it's always the case when we get to spring or we get to the season you know there are atmospheric effects when you're in a studio like if you're in uh, a, a place like tread or driveline um you know that's like being in a dome you're inside you know in terms of humidity and like most of the things are ideal and then you're going to get out there you know uh i don't know where wherever uh a's are gonna play or where you know like you're gonna like what if you're in salt lake city <laughs> you know <laughs> like and that's not that's not tread or driveline anymore so there's or you get down to arizona you know where it's higher elevation and drier you know maybe you know these things aren't going to pour it over so i'm interested i'm going to keep my ear open i'm going to maybe try and collect some of these and write about it at some point but uh for right now i'm i'm like that's nice that's cool. I like Cole Reagans. You like Cole Reagans. I feel <laughs> like we're going to all see players like this, not just Reagans. Players like this get significant bumps over the course of draft season if they're able to do it in multiple appearances. Even though we're talking about a, a total of innings, it would probably be roughly two starts from the start of Cactus League and Grapefruit League play until the end. That's probably about two starts, two full regular season starts worth of pitches. The more we see it, the more people are going to react to it. And I'm worried that if you are a helium player like Reagan's, you go from potentially draftable in your current range, which is around pick 100, to impossible to draft if he jumps two rounds even. I mean, he's creeping up into, you know, SP2 territory. And then, you know, there are other SP2s that you could take that would be... Uh, that. I think would be more solid when it comes to injury, like Grayson Rodriguez and, and Bobby Miller. Nothing like the same injury history and, and great stuff themselves, right? Um, to like the most solid, boring veterans like Logan Gilbert and Zach Allen. Like, you know, you're going to really push Reagans up into that? You know, like I'll take Logan Gilbert over Cole Reagans no matter what, how excited you are about Cole Reagans. Like, Logan Gilbert is. It's not we had to, we haven't yet come up with a term for like good oatmeal. Somebody has suggested one in our inbox. I forgot what it was. Better oats. <laughs> it's an actual product. Eggs, eaten eggs and good. toast, I guess. <laughs> eggs, that's just not even oatmeal anymore. Yeah, right. Completely throwing that aside. Restaurant oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> the oatmeal that somebody else prepared yeah. for me. <laughs> The, the psychology behind that's real. You could make yourself a sandwich with the same set of ingredients as someone else, and the sandwich that someone else made for you tastes better because of the anticipation, right? Yeah. You, you kind of, lack of break down the anticipation <laughs> while you're doing it, and the unknown is what adds to some of the appeal, apparently. Carlos Rodon has a new cutter, which is kind of interesting, but that came out with word that his velo was down a couple of ticks compared to where he was last season. And this, to me, is a situation where if people were to react and back off of Rodon, I would say that's wrong because the first start of spring shouldn't be the same velo as your regular season velo. 
Like, why, why would we expect that to be the case? We just had this, this bullpen session where everyone was like raving about his velo. So, um, yeah, 93, six, uh, I think I've done some actual looking at this and you're, you're like a, a tick to a tick and a half is completely plausible for spring break for spring training you know so getting him from 93.6 to 95.1 uh is is totally fine and i guess as your average last year was 95.3 um and then there is a lot of variation around that for for players because there's i think there's just veterans that want to show up to camp and ramp up over camp and then there's like we talked about with trevor may this idea that like the young guys um, who are trying to make the team are going to swing at first pitches, right? And I think the pitching version of that is they're going to arrive pretty close to their opening day velo because they don't want to they don't want to lose out to anybody. They want to spend spring training convincing everybody that they're the number four starter, or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So uh, in I think Rodon is going to be more in the camp of like, yeah, my spot is there for me. <laughs> Right, like I've got a role. Uh, I let's. I'm trying to be helpful, healthy all year. Let's just make it look good. I thought he looked good. I thought it looked good. Like I thought it was just one of the big things was he's placing his fastball better. Like it was better fastball command. Uh, he was able to hit spots up and up in the zone. The cutter I thought was all right. There were some really ugly swings. I thought it was a good outing. So uh, I'm not going to uh, be too upset about the 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 the, uh, the velo on that. Uh, other interesting thing from that one is I know that uh, Bowden Francis gave up um, some runs, but uh, you know he has a really interesting fastball with good shape, um, and I thought the curveball made some people look pretty silly. So uh, I think that Bowden Francis is uh, someone to put on your list of you know like eight seventh eight starters that might move into the like he probably has more innings than Ricky Tideman, so. He might be he might be the guy that 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 ends up spot starting or you know taking over somebody if they're hurt in in Toronto. Yeah, that's interesting. The depth could matter in that spot. They didn't really have to tap into it that much last season, but you can't really bank on that being a year over year sort of trend. The other notes here, I'm going to run through a bunch of these quickly, and we'll kind of circle back after I get through them and talk about ones that matter. Spencer Strider was working on a new curveball. And uh, Lance Brozdowski had some details in his Substack post about it. It's similar to the Tyon or Bryce Miller curveball, but with more sweep through all three of those to lefties during his outing this weekend. So that could be another weapon for Spencer Strider to have in his arsenal. Uh, Lucas Giolito's got a new slider. And I saw this one too. Zach Plesak went to driveline. He's swapping in a, a two-seamer instead of a four-seamer. His slider is becoming more of a sweeper. That was a story that Jeff Fletcher wrote over at the Orange County Register. But... Plesak's the kind of dude that can go into an offseason, revamp everything, and he'll actually cruise somewhat under the radar because expectations are just so unbelievably low. But hey, he's got an opportunity for a job and seems to be at least trying to revamp things in a way that'll make him more effective. Yeah, I do wonder, you know, when I hear that, I hear problems against lefties. And his four-seam fastball had a 38.5 stuff plus last year. <laughs> Uh, so I, maybe the old slider becomes more of a cutter and he's cutter, sweeper, sinker. And then against lefties, he's kind of like cutter, sweeper. Like you, you hear like there's something that came out of that panel that, you know, talking with James, uh, Ciano was just a, 
sort of refocus, and this is something that Nick Pollock talks a lot about, um, like sort of thinking about what the player is going to do against lefties and righties. You know, thinking about what the pitcher's arsenal looks like. That's a big thing that I think I missed on Graham Ashcraft was like, how is he going to how is he going to get lefties out? You know, and we saw even Brandon Fott like throwing that sinker, getting better. He still struggled against lefties because you don't want to throw that sinker to lefties. So uh, I think this is an interesting way for him to recover his career. And obviously, since his four seam shape was so terrible, he had to do something else. But it it does sort of lean reliever-ish to me, right? Become more of a sinker sweeper guy, get righties out you know, doesn't seem to have the arsenal to get lefties out. I just want to see where he's throwing the two-seamer. Is he trying to use it for sink, or is he actually able to throw it up in the zone? Yeah, it's more of a lateral two-seamer, yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the thing I want to see. I think Just thinking about what Bassett does with his, part of that breakdown is like, okay, you got a two-seamer. Where are you throwing it? That's that's to me really important. Right, that's, we, didn't, we didn't have the heat map, but Brady Singer, loan away, and middle-middle, not an approach against opposite-handed guys with sinkers. The important thing is we all looked at the heat map. <laughs> Even though it didn't get turned into a card, we did look at the heat map. Uh, some other news and notes here. Shohei Otani's spring debut should come Tuesday, so good news for him as he tries to get ready for the opener in Korea, which is just a few weeks away. I saw Emmett Sheehan has not thrown in recent days due to general body soreness. That comes from Fabian Ardaya of The Athletic. Um, maybe the most interesting Dodgers story that I saw this weekend was about Teoscar Hernandez talking about some difficulties he had picking up the ball in Seattle last year at T-Mobile Park, and it was reflected in his production. Almost a 200-point difference between his OPS at home and his OPS on the road, and I wonder if we're going to get more stories like this going forward. I mean, the Willie Adames one from the Trop is one of the first times I heard a player, in recent years anyway, talk in detail about how much they didn't like hitting in a certain ballpark and it makes a big difference especially when that's your home park you're playing half your games there not being able to get comfortable not being able to to see the ball the way you want is going to have a massive impact american family field is a dome correct well it's a retractable, a retractable roof it's usually it's usually closed usually closed usually. right um i'm just interested i'm doing the start stat cast uh park factors for strikeouts which is, you know, comparing home and away for players and, and seeing who strikes out more in those stadiums than uh, in other stadiums. Tampa is number one. And yes, I talked to uh, Willie Thomas about that, and he said it was the lights. I've talked to Chris Bassett, and it wasn't necessarily like the lights in your eyes or anything. Um, Bassett was saying that like natural lighting on a ball just is like, just like more natural. Like, I don't know if it didn't come out right, but you know, like, it's just like, if you if you have LEDs, if you have like hospital lighting on a ball, it's going to be like really well lit from the top and really shadowy from the bottom, right? Whereas there's something maybe about sunlight or the way sunlight reflects off of things that the ball is like just more uniformly lit and maybe in a way that our brain is just used to seeing. Like we go out, like how many times have you played baseball in a hospital? You know what I mean? And how many times over your course of your life have you played baseball outside? So, you know, there's something about the lighting that may be affecting. It may be a little bit different than people. It's not like lighting in your eyes or whatever. But I otherwise, I think of um, of the uh, batter's eye. Um, and 
you know, I don't know what it could be about the batter's eye in Milwaukee. And the last thing I think about is maybe pitches move really uniformly. Like we we're just talking about, like maybe in a dome pitches are like easy to predict. They move the way you're expecting them to. And so whatever you plan, you've come up with your stuff plus and your blah, 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 you know, you like you, you can execute it cause it's a dome. Right. Um, but that's not true for some of the other n names behind them uh, because we've got uh, the Braves at Truist Park is the fourth highest uh, for strikeouts. Uh, Yankee Stadium is fifth. Angel Stadium is sixth. Angel Stadium has changed their batter's eye recently. Um, so, you know, there could be batter's eye issues. I don't know what it is, but it is a little bit weird to me if you... This is like something that I had to come like to terms with recently was that they are park factors for strikeouts. You know, like you wouldn't necessarily think that that would be a thing. You know what I mean? You just like, oh yeah, I get it. When you hit a ball this hard in that direction, you know, sometimes you're in a place where the walls are, you know, 20 feet further. Yeah, I get it. Or you're in a place where it's 10 degrees colder. I get it. But with a, with a strikeout, I'm like, why? Yeah. And, you know, thinking about the opposite end, Colorado, which makes sense because nothing the moves. conditions yeah. there, nothing moves, has the lowest strikeout park factor. The three-year park factor from StatCast is at 85 on strikeouts at Coors. It's interesting there's a handful of parks that aren't that far away. Kauffman Stadium, Kansas City, yeah, is an why? 87. Why? Nationals Park is an 89. Bush Stadium's a 90. And that's PNC's a 92. Why? So those are your five most hitter-friendly parks by strikeout park factor, which is just kind of a yeah, I, I, what do those parks have in common? They're not, I mean, I guess Kansas City and St. Louis like probably have similar weather. Humidity, right? Hot, humid summers. And D.C., I guess, would have some pretty humid summers. Pittsburgh probably too, but I, I mean, I guess that's kind of what they have in common. And I guess, uh, oh, I did, uh, a thing that is not um, obvious is that balls move more easily through humid air. Yeah, yeah, that was that's counterintuitive to me. I, I always thought that heavier air would provide heavy, air quotes heavier right. air, but water molecules resistance. are lighter than air molecules. I I, I don't understand that. Yeah, that does not make sense to me. But uh, I need to go back to school and take science classes all over again. Yeah, it's like making me think that I don't even understand the concept of heaviness anymore. Um, <laughs> air is this heavy and water is definitely heavier but you're talking on a molecular level and uh, and so maybe the ball moves easier through humid air so maybe it doesn't move as much the pitch doesn't move would people watch a baseball science YouTube show All right, well, you've got Bill Nye we could get Bill Nye let's have Bill Nye on a Friday if we can He'll make us feel so dumb, but we'll enjoy it. So it'll be okay. <laughs> or, or Alan Nathan, who knows very specific baseball physics stuff very well. I'm going to say it's about 90% or better that Alan Nathan would respond and join the show. I'm going <laughs> to say it's Nye. less than 10% that Bill Nye makes an appearance on Rates and Barrels. We'll try. We'll try to get both because I think both would be great guests. But yeah, if you think a, a science-specific baseball episode would be valuable let us know we'll probably try and make one someday at least 
If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is meme mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation all through a barely-there poke-hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Let's move on to some draft strategy, right? This is the time of year. Everyone's starting to think about what they want to do in their drafts. Uh, you mentioned TGFBI. You're in the, the seven spot. Those are 15-team leagues. It's a slow draft, four-hour clock. We've got in-season moves, very standard five-by-five league. 14 hitters, nine pitchers, seven bench spots. I've got the 15 spot, which I put in the middle of my draft preferences. I put one through seven first, and then I went 15 uh, in part because of the four hour clock, in part because I like building teams from the wheel. I like to take two players together. You cannot, I don't care if it's Bill Nye or Alan Nathan or any of the smartest people on the planet. Ariel Cohen, whoever whoever wants to come at me and say, there's no advantage to two picks in a row, you're wrong. There is an advantage. <laughs> I can't quantify it. I can't prove it. And someday I will quantify it and prove it. Until then, right. it's just, it's a comfort for me. Because it's theoretically at seven, um, you know, what the what the research has shown is that maybe, you know, these middle picks that have been better. I think those are a lot um, dependent on the group think of the moment, you know, because runs are the herd running in one direction or the other. And, um, you know, maybe two picks in a row is more an advantage if you don't participate in runs or you have a good way of avoiding runs. And the good way to avoid runs is to put yourself in a position to never need anything, you know? And so, you know, at seven, the theoretically, the, re the reason that it's nice to have seven is that, you know, I can react. If a bunch of closers start going, I can get one of the closers before I am not part of it. But I would say that most drafts have runs where no matter where you're picking, the run goes too quickly for you to take part. The tiers, the groups of players are not large enough to always leave you something just because you're in the middle. 
And you're like, how many closers are in your circle of trust? If you choose not to take a closer in the third round, and because you say, well, there's still four closers left in my circle of trust, well, how many times do you think it's going to go bang, bang, boom? And you're like, oh, there they go. <laughs> All the time, because there is sort of a, a market and room-induced panic that occurs. People start to say, uh-oh, these people next to me just got their closer. I better get mine right now. And there's only a couple more that I trust. And most people in the room have a similar group of players on that list. That's just the way it works. So, yeah, I mean, in auctions and in in in, in draft situations, you almost never want to have one player on your queue that you really need you know and i just right. i just learned this with you know juan mancada i i let one i i picked something thinking juan mancada is going to come back to me nobody wants juan mancada um and uh i took tyler black over juan mancada to back up ellie de la cruz well Juan Mercado went, boys and ladies and gentlemen, and uh, and so now I'm gonna have even more risky uh, situations behind Ellie. So this this league that I'm in uh, is gonna sink or, or, or swim with Ellie De La Cruz because <laughs> I've got Tyler Black and uh, a bunch of nincompoops behind him. So <laughs> good use of nincompoops. Have you? How many teams have you built with Ellie on them? Two now. Two now. Okay. On the first one, did you do a better job backing him up than you did on the yes. the Mancata fail team? Yeah. I mean, so you you sort of knew going in, right? Part of part of a draft strategy is thinking about the different extremes that could present themselves, and extremes could be in the form of just a player that you think is is polarizing or challenging to roster. Player uh, type, Ellie would like closers, or you know. Yes, and so the other the more practical examples just beyond it. And Ellie would be, what if I do miss out on the closer run? What am I going to do then? Like you should be thinking about that now and not when the clock is ticking down in between your picks, right? Clay you should Holmes have an idea. Answer. Yeah. Okay. Clay Holmes is, is your answer. And then if someone gets you on Clay Holmes, you got to have a plan of, okay, uh, I don't have any closers. I got to get one that has the job now, and then I have to throw a certain number of darts later. And if I'm going to do that, that means my roster at the bottom looks different. I can't throw darts at starting pitchers as much because I need to throw them at the relievers because I didn't I didn't buy a reliever early. And this is really important in draft and holds. You have limited amount of slots. So if you don't get an early closer like I did in that one. Um, and you and you're like well, that's fine. I'll just have eight relievers. Well, that's two slots that you could have on backup infielders or other starting pitchers. You know, like so. There's you're always going to pay for it somewhere. <laughs> you know? Always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the way I would look at it is try to break down every category that matters in your league and figure out what is available in abundance later on. And even within that, you might notice some patterns. Oh, okay. Well, there are there are late steals available, but most of those players are outfielders and middle infielders. Okay, so if I don't have speed early, I have to make sure I don't take players in the outfield or the middle infield spot who fail to meet that categorical need. And to put some specifics to it, I was looking at the bats projections. And I was looking for 20 steal players available after pick 150 overall. So later than the 10th round, this is a pretty short list of players. And I also said 500 projected plate appearances. I want some 
decent confidence this player is going to have a meaningful role. Jaron Duran, TJ Friedel, Trevor Story, Tommy Edmond. End list. That's it. For 500 projected plate appearances and 20 steals after pick 150. There are other players that are projected for 20 steals. They're just projected for less playing time, either because of their injury histories or crowded depth charts. So Starling Marte would pop on that list. Whit Merrifield, Willie Castro, Jose Siri, Bryce Terang. But you can hear the difference in the names for the most part. Those are really risky players. I think you could argue Marte at least being capable of 500 plus based on opportunity desired usage <laughs> the the idea of giving him more playing time is obviously there they would like to do it it's just a question of whether his body holds up but a lot of the other guys it's harder to talk yourself into a larger role for them harrison bader john birdie jake mccarthy miles straw i think adalberto mondesi is projected for 20 steals <laughs> don't know how he's going to play enough to get there but what that tells me is i don't want to chase a lot of speed late but if I have a roster that's set up to get guys that give me maybe 10 bags, there's still plenty of options. It's just knowing that if I need 20 from someone that I trust, it's someone above the Edmund line. It's going to be before pick 200 because none of those guys other than Marte are available after pick 200 right now. And if Marte is healthy all spring, he's going to join those other guys. He's going to join the four guys that are actually projected to be everyday players out of that group. There is a, a sort of flip side that's maybe specific to draft and hold, which is that there are these like kind of speedy types that are fringe that don't have the playing time that you could start you like start picking as backups. And so you can pick like Tyler Black and Sedana Raffaella and like, you know, you there's like a, a group of players that are like fourth outfielders, might get a job this year, young players that have speed. And so, you know, you can try to get up like so in this one that i'm doing right now i have 160 steals out of my starting lineup in the main event you want 180 185 but i have found that in drafting holds it's a little bit lower because you don't have free agency you can't be streaming hitters you know you're stuck with whatever you got right um so maybe i have just enough stolen bases i want more so tyler black was one of my first prospecty pickups Right. Because I'm like, here's a guy who stole like 40, 50 bags, whatever it was like, you know, if he gets a job, he can get one. And I might try to re up in that bin where I get a bunch of sort of speedy prospects that could come up. Um, so there is a sort of dividing line. But if you want an actual player that steals bags, you kind of have to pick them earlier. It's a little bit easier to find a Nelson Velasquez type later where you're like, I just need, you know, 25 to 30 homers. I think it's a little bit easier to find that. But the main thing that I saw in the rundown, I don't I hope I'm not ruining anything. Batting average. Right. You limited a lot of your queries by 260 plus batting average because 260 is the general sort of place you want to be at the end of your draft. You don't want to take a lot of guys. 260 is, is good. You don't really want to take under that. So, you know, if you want... 230 and 30 homers or 230 and 20 steals it there's a lot more going for you that means you got to keep your batting average up at the beginning right so the reason i started digging into this was because i had a, a theory for my mixed labor team i had the fifth pick and i took strider in the first round didn't love the hitters that were there in two so I went ahead and paired Strider with Corbin Burns. It wasn't the predetermined must-do strategy. It was the thing that made the most sense pitching at the time. Heavy. I said, okay, go pitching heavy. 
and do the pocket aces and still find enough value in the hitters that I get in the next you know, seven or eight rounds, get a couple closers eventually, I think I can still build a really competitive team. Maybe I can actually win the ratios too. I'll try to win ERA and whip and Ks and hopefully win wins. Like this is, I was shooting for Pitchers a 150. Pitchers are good enough, you know, it's possible. Pitchers are good enough. My thought was, okay, if I go pitcher, pitcher, what do I want to do with my offense for my first couple of picks? Like, what are my bats going to look like? Is there a categorical weakness that I'm more comfortable with? Am I more comfortable taking the flyer on finding late speed? Or am I going to be more comfortable taking flyers on late power? And you could end up with both. You could keep it balanced. I ended up building it a little more imbalanced at first because my first two hitters were Vlad Jr. and Royce Lewis. And the reason I went with those two is because I wanted... Young hitters with power with high batting average potential. I wanted to try and lock in average to give myself some cushion in case I needed it for the power and for, for late, late power. But I also figured there was more speed available late. That's what I figured. I figured the quality power bats would have more of those flaws like you described. And I should have thought <laughs> I should have done the rundown for today's show before last Tuesday's draft. But I think I was mostly right. And this is what you were getting at. Guys that will hit 260 with 20 plus homers by projection, available at pick 150 or later, there are five, only five hitters that meet that criteria. Christian Encarnacion Strand, and his playing time's a little light. If he ends up getting everyday playing time, whew, big value. Oh, wrong way. Taylor, Taylor Ward, Eloy Jimenez, Andrew Vaughn, and Ryan Mountcastle. Those are the only five hitters. And, and 260 is an arbitrary cutoff. It's not actually. I mean, at 260, if you end up your draft with 260, you're good. Right. But if I'm saying if you put the filter down to 257, that's going to give you maybe a couple more names, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's like you, you could mess with these a little bit, but it's just to give you an idea. What's available to you if you keep your batting average high? Right. And then on the other side... I cut the speed threshold down to 10 steals because I thought, okay, maybe I'll just get like 10 steals from 10 or so players in my lineup. And a couple guys will run more than that. But I'll just, I'll, I'll plan on getting at least 10 from 10 spots and some will be a few more. You'll find yourself a lot of steals. times I have four slots left and I need 40 steals. Like you yeah. just need, I don't need to get it all from one guy. I just need to keep, keep getting them. And maybe because stolen bases don't correlate as strongly with the other categories, I can be okay in steals, not bad, and that'll be fine. And that list is pretty big. 260, after pick 150, 10 steal players, Jaron Duran, Novi Marte, Cabrian Hayes, Tommy Edmond, Ezekiel Tovar, Stephen Kwan, Jeremy Pena, Michael Garcia, Vaughn Grissom, Whit Merrifield, Sal Freelich, Tim Anderson, and then late, 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 you got... You know, Alec Thomas, Ahmed Rosario, Andrew Benintendi, Birdie, and Edward Olivares. So there's some decent players. It's a decent group of players that I, I like most of the players on that list as late players because they, they do a little bit of everything and they run enough to be at least kind of average in the category at the price. So I think by, by looking at where late power comes from and what else comes with it versus what late speed tends to come with, I'm pretty comfortable being lighter on speed than I am on power if I have to be lighter in one of those two things. You may build a very balanced team where you don't have this problem, but you don't always have the luxury of choosing. Sometimes you're just you're left with what the board gives you. 
and then you're stuck chasing something later on. Well, one thing I like about that too is just it it goes into what uh, you know my biases, which is you know that I want to take a backup middle infielder, no matter what type of league I'm in. I want to have one of those everyday players because you know middle infielders, especially shortstops, seem to be everyday players. So if I have a backup shortstop, you know that that's like good for my team. It's a backup MI. Um, it's another shot at greatness because a lot of times you know you've got young players that could really emerge i don't know i don't like tovar but maybe you do you know i like zach netto the you know i like jeremy pena getting one of those guys on your bench gives you an opportunity to get a young guy that could steal some that's going to play every day you know and a lot of times they steal a little bit so you, all those guys i mentioned pena tovar uh and and uh, netto are all projected for like 15 steals so that's a great thing to like you know head dead maybe get those in just to get a couple extra steals they're gonna play so they're, if they're if you've got the opportunity you can put them in um and then the other thing i'm always looking for late is outfielders because I feel like there's just always plentiful outfielders. I think there's the fourth outfielder plays more than most people think. Uh, there's a lot of places where young players will break in on the outfield because their glove isn't as good as you thought. Justin Henry Malloy or Sedano Raffaello going from the infield to the outfield. There's a lot of times where you know, maybe Tyler Black will end up in the outfield. You know, like there's just you know, like a, a, a lot of players in the outfield pool that are kind of coming and going. And so if I'm going to take outfielders late and I'm going to take a middle infielder late, I love that they're probably going to come with 10 to 20 stolen bases. And so like, I almost program that into most of my strategies is like to do something like that. Yeah. So uh, that's a big part of why he's like at my door barking. I got to let him in, I guess he's upset. Let, <laughs> yeah. let him in. Let him in. It's okay. Well, you know, let's the good boy back into his office. I also made a list of 240 average 20 plus Homer players pick 250 or later. So that's got CES. Logan O'Hoppy, Story, Morell, Adames Hoskins, Jamer Candelario, Tyler O'Neill, Brandon Drury, Ryan McMahon. I ended up with a decent number of players from this group. There's a few more names on here as well, but I found that this was a good bin to shop in overall. Like the 240 bin with the 20 plus home run power, there's a ton of good players in that group. And because I had the early batting average foundation between Vlad, Royce Lewis, and then Nico Horner. Nico Horner is my guy who runs more, but also helps in batting average. I felt like I could take a couple of swings in the 240 bucket, and it wasn't going to tank my average, but it was going to be enough of a, a categorical like benefit in runs and RBIs and power to justify it. So I felt like this was a good, good value value range to target. And I, we talk about these guys all the time, Adames and Hoskins, Eloy, Ryan McMahon is the most oatmeal-y player ever, but he's a good defender. He plays every day. He's second and third base eligible. If you play in a deeper league, especially a 15-team league or deeper, he's just a really good glue player to have. Even though there's, there's probably not one more level there, it's not that exciting. But players like that are very helpful to have over a full season. Yeah. You know, and I've with these LA builds, I've been forcing myself and maybe with this Tatis choice, I've been forcing myself to um, really keep an eye on batting average. I've been using the Rotowire software. I'm not putting in everybody because I don't want to do that, but I'm just putting my team so I can check my targets and, and, and so it can do the math for me and tell me, you know, what my projected stuff is. And uh, I've been trying to keep that batting average above 260 for a 15 team team, 15 uh, team league. 
And what I found was that if I, you know, I took Tyler O'Neill and MJ Melendez in the middle of my outfield because they fell. They were, uh, you know, the auction calculator said they were good values. I needed outfielders. Uh, both of them are going to steal a, a certain amount. You know, they're not, they're, not, they're non-zero stealers, but with power. But their batting averages aren't great. And so my batting average kept getting closer and closer to 260. So I felt I needed a couple of players. And that's another thing. There's two ways to look at this. You don't want to look at your queue and say that that's a player. That's one player I need. That's not good. And then you also don't want to pick a player because you need to, you know, um, which I think you do sometimes with batting average. You put yourself in that position. So I took Alex Verdugo and Luis Campusano because I needed to, to some extent, you know, because they because they were good batting average uh, players, uh, you know, according like uh, put up against their peers. And uh, they were going to keep my, my batting average above 260. Um, guess what happens when you take Luis Camposano and Alex Verdugo, you fall a little bit behind in the power. But you can find some of that cheaper power later that you, you kind of position yourself properly to take on. Like you, the cheap power is there. You just have to make sure you are, <laughs> you are in a position where it doesn't hurt you to take it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, in the drafting holds, I think you also just want to, because the, the multi eligibility really helps because you really want to get like three bodies and four eligibilities at most of your positions. And so um, you'll see like, that's why the Juan Mankata really messed up because Juan Mankata was the everyday player that was going to sit with Tyler Black behind Elliot de la Cruz. And now I'm sort of searching for that. Um, so you, what you really want to do is when you, with your early picks, take some multi eligibilities, um, take your, look at what is going to be available later. You know what I mean? Like, and, and think about, you know, okay. Uh, the, the auction calculator says I should take this player, but there's only like two th first basemen that start every day left. So I should take one of those guys. And the more you can avoid, you know, getting into decisions like that, the better. And the the way you do it is thinking about eligibility is the same way we've just been thinking about stats. You know, you know, you can get pushed into a corner by eligibilities as much as you can get pushed into a corner by stats. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, you say I have to have something that fits here, and the runs might break in a way where you're taking a player you just don't even like, but you you have to That's literally right. just That's need right. a starter there. I'm going to be with my third and fourth third baseman on this team. <laughs> Yeah, say maybe maybe you cut that a little too thin. Uh, I was going to ask, hey, have you built any pocket aces teams the last couple of years? I don't remember us ever talking about it. I've never done it. I mean, I might have never done it for TGFBI it. last year, but I don't do it. Yeah, yeah, it's never really come up. And the hard thing, I think the hard thing about it is figuring out when you go back into pitching. You, you feel like, oh, I got to get bats, got to get bats. Eventually, you have to round out the rotation. You can't just walk into the start of the season with your, your pocket aces and your two closers and say, ah, I'm good. Like, no, you don't want to chase five pitching spots. That's going to be a problem. Um, but I think what you were describing was keeping an eye on each position cue, seeing where those drop-offs are, seeing how much value is left at each spot. I was using that as my guide for how long I was going to wait to get back into pitching. So as long as there was enough quality at each position that I was looking at for the bats at that point, I'd go back to pitching. And if there were drop-offs that were coming, I would try to address needs as long as I possibly could before going back. And you miss out on some pitchers you like, because I didn't draft a starting pitcher after I took Burns in the second, 
I took Helsley and Fairbanks in the seventh and the eighth for the two closers. Hopefully protecting the ratios. Hopefully getting two actual good closers. Fair amount we'll of injury risk. Tons but of injury risk. It's a free agency risk, league, so free agency league, and you can trade. So there's there's a few ways to get what you need. I waited all the way until the thirteenth to get you Darvish as my third pitcher, and I got Aaron Savali in the sixteenth. So those are my first six pitchers. Six pitchers in the first sixteen rounds on pocket aces. I don't know if I completely aced it based on the opportunities I had. Did you at other make pitchers. it into a weakness by waiting too long in the middle? But one nice thing is that by picking those two first ones, you're now you know looking in a bat. You're looking at bats when everybody else is looking at arms. Yes, and that was huge for me. It was saying the there's kind of like this leverage to the build component. Everyone else is looking at different things in those middle rounds when people were loading up on the starting pitchers that we all like. I mean, look, we we all like the value on someone like Dylan Cease or um, you know, Verlander or Hunter Green. Like, there's only so many of those guys to go around. Bryce Miller. It was hard to watch those players go for fair values, knowing that I really needed to be addressing But you were also probably looking at some fun bats. But I was, yeah, I was loading up on bats. I mean, so it went Vlad Jr., Royce Lewis, Nico Horner, Cody Bellinger, three through six. Uh-huh. The Helsley Fairbanks, seven and eight. Then back to bats, I went Jackson Churio in the ninth, Zach Galloff in the 10th, Cal Raleigh in the 11th, Reese Hoskins in the 12th. Mm. Squeezed in the Darvish pick to get some more innings. Hopefully some it's more innings. It's just so interesting. I, I think that like, I would recommend, um, you know, mock drafting or, you know, having a league that you don't care about as much. You know, I would recommend trying different things because, um, you know, in the last two draft and holds I've done, I've tried, uh, you know, you know, a little bit slightly different pitching strategy. And even just not taking a pitcher in the second round changes what you're looking for when other people are looking for things. Um, I just noticed like, so by not, by taking Elliot Cruz in the third instead of a, a pitcher. And what happened was that Kirby and Castillo went and I just didn't really want to take a back end top 10 uh, starting pitcher there when, you know, Elliot Cruz is sitting there. So, um, you know, I, I, just by taking Elliot Cruz in the third, instead of a pitcher my infield is pretty sexy i think it's goldschmidt hoskins betts simeon india swanson netto elliot de la cruz tyler black i think it's at least on the starting level it's it's awesome maybe we'll see what happens to my third baseman depth there but um i feel really excited about that 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 infield crew um even if you push mookie to the outfield to make my outfield better my bats are good it just by doing something as simple as not taking a starting pitcher in the second round, I was doing something different than, than the rest of the league and was looking at different player groupings. So, you know, whatever you can do to do that, like, yeah, I ended up with uh, Holmes. My, my starting pitching is Fromber uh, and Bobby Miller. And my relief pitching is the one that got hurt the, hurt the most by doing this because I didn't take a closer in the fourth because I didn't take a starter in third and I took a starter in the fourth. So then I didn't take a closer in the fourth. I let, I lost out on all those closers. I got Clay Holmes. But getting Clay Holmes makes you think, well, maybe I need to spend a little bit more on relieving because that I got the, one of the worst closers won. So I took Jansen as my next pitcher and Robert Suarez because I still believe in him, even though Kiku, uh, um, what's his face is looking good. That's not Kikuchi. Yeah, Yuki Matsui. Yeah, Yuki Matsui is looking pretty good. Um, so I ended up, like we said earlier, you end up paying always. And I ended up paying in sort of jumping Suarez and Jansen a little bit like 10, 15 picks on their ADP uh, just to, to, to get three good closers. So, you know, it's just a, it's a, the fingers and the dike holes. It's like, you're just, you're just trying to stop leaks wherever you can. And 
you know, but I would recommend at least trying one where you do something totally different and see, see what kind of players you're looking at. Yeah, it's the best way to really problem solve it is to put yourself in it. You can try and do it by theory. You can try to do it with ADP reports. That's better than not doing anything at all. But you have to understand when you pull this string, what happens? If you pull that string, what happens? What's going to be the weakness in the end? And I think for the pocket aces build that I used, maybe it's a little bit of speed. Maybe it's the risk on closers, but I at least have a shot of being pretty balanced across the board. And I would say, I wonder if a build like this is one where you shouldn't take a highly regarded prospect. You know, Jackson Churio in the ninth is pretty risky when yeah, cause you, need, you started you building need your hitters late. And stuff. Yeah. But maybe you need a first, you need a first round pick and who, which one of your guys is going to play like a first round pick. Maybe Vlad. Yeah, Vlad could be, Royce Lewis could be, like I said, Bellinger was almost a top 10 hitter last year. I got him in the sixth round. What if he's a second or third round value again this year? It's not, it's not out of the question. The thing with Churio is just before that happened, I took him with the fifth pick around nine. Anthony Volpe went off the board two picks before Jeff Erickson. I thought that was a good pick. That would have fit my team really well because I didn't have a shortstop yet. I think Volpe could take another step. The picks after Churio, as far as the hitters, Josh Naylor, nah, I, you know, nice player. You can find more of that later. Estuary Ruiz, I wouldn't have taken him in the ninth. Cedric Mullins, he's fine, but I, I just, Got I wasn't. My belt. <laughs> I, I didn't miss out on anybody that I really, really like on the hitter side in that range. Riley Green, I think Mullins Ian versus Hap. Churio is fascinating because, you know, there's there's like an extreme likelihood that they get pretty close in outcomes you're just a lot more safer with one or the other and there's i think the top end outcomes are better with churio but like it could like really easily they could go through the season and both hit 250 with 15 homers and like 25 stolen bases well yeah I, I, stolen can, bases. I think you're right i think that both the ceiling and the floor on jackson churio are further apart yeah why nice, I've nice vaulted ceilings because i usually end up taking uh, first and second round bats but then the thing I always do after I draft the team is I look at the player that I felt like I reached for and I play that game where I'm like, well, if Churio switched spots with Zach Geloff in the 10th, would I feel better? Sure. Would I feel bad about Geloff in the 9th? Nope, not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Churio switched spots with Cal Raleigh in the 11th, would I feel bad about Raleigh moving him up to the 10th? Nah, no, not really. Seems okay. Big power, good run production, low average. Uh, I think I've said this before, but I l- I'm perfectly content to take on some of my water in the batting average category from the catcher spot raleigh plays a lot so he he will have a little more of a negative impact than some of the guys that play less than him but i'd rather get that there than have it from someone that could go 600 plus plate appearances you don't want the it's like bad ratios same concept you don't want bad ratios from a high volume starter yeah. you're talking about that with with aaron nola on your panel it's right. like part of the reason why it, when when it goes wrong for aaron nola if the ratios are a little high, it hurts you badly because he the thing you drafted him for the was volume. the volume. Suddenly becomes and he gave a you the volume, <laughs> but it was just a bunch of bricks in your backpack, yeah. and, and that's not that's not you know that's not good. So um, I I, I kind of do that that game where I'm like, okay, well if I took Chorio in the 11th or 12th, and everybody else I took after him, I had to take one round earlier, that'd be fine. So it's the collection of players you walk away with in the end. That's always what it comes back to. Um, what a fun draft though. I, I, I love the 15 team format. Like I, I really do. And I think everything I'd done at this point was a slow draft. So I didn't have the immediate, uh, gratification of building a team and looking back at it and go, Oh, that was, that was a plan that I didn't expect to use that. I felt like I executed pretty well. Usually it takes like two weeks to build a, a slow draft team. 
you look back at it after a while it fall and you're just like apart in, in real time <laughs> just yeah, really yeah. slowly falling apart and by the time you're done building it like oh i don't want to see that team again for a <laughs> yeah. month <laughs> yeah i've been calling this one the yo-yo draft because i'm i'm yoloing but then I'm, I'm trying to pair like really high upside with really high floor one like pick to pick and i've been yo-yoing on how much i hate it too it's the waffle draft. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are going to go on our way out the door. Just a reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic. It is $2 a month for the first year. Theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. will get you in the door. Draft kit launched last week. Lots of great stuff rolling out through there. Uh, we've got weekly recaps from the pod that go up every Friday afternoon now. A reminder, we got the live stream coming up again, 1 o'clock Eastern this Friday. we got another team preview episode coming out this week. I think we have two more of those on the schedule for this week, and then we close the book on those next week. So tons of content coming at you fast and furious this time of year. And on Twitter, you can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Follow the pod at Rates and Barrels, and be sure to jump in the Discord if you haven't done so already. That link will be available in the show description under this video or in the show notes on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. So got the live stuff in New York to look forward to, March 2021st. But uh, otherwise, uh, good luck drafting, and thanks for listening. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.